So here's what I want you to think about for a, a, a moment, because I think this is something we all know, that life rarely goes as planned. Right? Would you agree with that? Raise your hand if you agree. Life rarely goes as planned, right? Now, is it a good idea to plan? Yes or no? Of course it is. It's great to plan. Everybody should plan. Plans are great. But reality seems to be greater, isn't it? Right? Reality kicks in. Reality always wins. Uh, I, I'm in the midst of a, of a home project right now, and, and if you've ever done a home project, have you ever figured out that life doesn't go as planned, right? You've done that? Now, the cool thing is I have some people helping us out, this group, this company, and they're, what they're doing is phenomenal. Everything they're doing is perfect. Everything I'm doing, not going according to plan. And, and so if you've done that, you know that in various ways of life, you just know life doesn't go as planned. And at the end of the day, what this means is, is, is we think about the reality that life doesn't go as planned, and you and I get in ourselves in situations where some of that is because of our decisions that we make. And some of that is because of the decisions that others make. And what we discover as we go through life is some of our plans doesn't look like they're going to they're gonna happen and come true. Some of our dreams aren't going to come true. In fact, we discover that some of our dreams won't come true. They can't come true. You may never get the opportunity to walk your daughter down the aisle. The two of you are not going to live happily ever after. The second marriage is starting to feel a whole lot like the first marriage. That prodigal child doesn't look like they're coming home. You're not getting into that school. Man, money. It's always going to be tight. Looks like the dream job isn't a dream job after all. The new business isn't going to make it. And depending on your theology or understanding of God or what kind of church, if you grew up in a church, some of you, some of us might be under the impression, wait a minute, God promised me. Wait, wait a minute, I, I kind of feel like God owes me. After all, you played by the rules. You tried to do everything right. You tried to raise them right. You behaved. You waited. You saved. Life doesn't go as planned. Well, today as we wrap up our series in the life of David, I, I want to ask a question that David's life answers for all of us. So what do you do? What do you do when your dreams can't come true? or don't come true, or won't come true. What we're going to do is we're going to run through the, the, really the last part of David's life and, and continue his narrative. And some of you are loving the story format. Some of you are like, what does all that have to do with me? You hang in with the story, you know the story, so eventually we can get to where God wants to take us this morning. And some of you, as we've done this, you've been like, man, I want to open the Bible more myself, and I want to read or reread these stories in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel, because David's life has been incredible. So we jump back to when David, and if I, did I already tell you to where to turn, 2 Samuel 12? 2 Samuel 12, make sure you're there. As we've seen uh, through the last couple of weeks, David was in his 20s, and when he was in his 20s, because of the decisions of somebody else, remember who those decisions were? Crazy King who? Crazy King... Saul, because of crazy King Saul, David realized, hey, some of my dreams aren't going to come true. 
And even though Samuel the prophet anointed David and made some specific promises to David, crazy King Saul decided that David's not life needed to end, that he needed to die. And so David spent his 20s as a man on the run. But he learned an important lesson during those wilderness years. It's a lesson that I hope all of us learn in our life. David learned that the best way for me to live my life is to live my life based on God's will, God's way, and God's time. Live my life with God's will in mind, God's way in mind, and God's timing in mind. So David discovered in his 20s his dreams can't come true because of another. But then he eventually becomes king. And then David begins to undermine his own dreams, and some of his dreams are not going to come true because of his own decisions. It starts off about 22 years after David becomes king. And David is in his palace, and he's there at night, and he's looking down, and he sees Uriah's wife bathing. And her name is, anybody know? Bathsheba, right? We know the story. At least many of you know the story. They end up spending the night together. They probably spent multiple nights together. She comes back to David eventually, and she tells him, I'm pregnant. And David says, I'm king. I can fix it. I'll take care of it. So he calls his, uh, her husband Uriah in from the battlefield and you know, wants to get a report. He comes in, gives a report, and as they wrap it up, they're like, hey, hey, Uriah, you know what? Appreciate all you're doing, all your hard work and hard, hard effort out there. Why don't you take the night off? You're, you're free. You know, go home, be with your wife, spend the evening with her, go enjoy the night off and get back to work tomorrow. Uriah, because of his honor code, he couldn't do that. Knowing that, that his men were out on the battlefield and they were fighting and they were dying, he couldn't do that. He was on the job. So he, he refuses. David ends up, you know, gets him to stick around another day, comes up with a plan, hey, I'm going to get him drunk and then send him home. He gets him drunk, sends him home, or tries to send him home. Uriah, because of his honor code, refuses once again. David's like, well, I've got to come up with another plan. So David decides to write a message to Joab, Uriah's commander. And he tells him, he says, I want you to put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle. And when the battle is going strong and it's at its most intense point, I want you all to withdraw from him. You know what David was doing? He was giving Uriah a death sentence. Well, that's what happened. Uriah, of course, dies in battle. David then marries Bathsheba, and it appears as if everything is good. Why? Because David managed the outcome. David forgot the wilderness years. God's way, God's will, God's time. And he tried to do it his way, his, in his will, in his time. Well, the, the prophet Nathan comes to David, and he tells him a story. And as David listens to the story, David just gets really, really angry and upset about the man that, in the story that Nathan's talking about. David can't believe the insensitivity of the man. David can't believe the cruelty of the man or the selfishness of the man. And then Nathan looks at David and says, David, you're the man in the story. And when that was revealed to David, his eyes are opened and his heart is opened. And his heart is broken. And it's not just because he was caught, but he allowed the law of God to humble him and to break him. But here's the problem. 
every sin, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a religious person or not, every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Every sin comes prepackaged with, you know, you could say a penalty. And that day, as David began to mourn his sin, as David began to own up to his sin, look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. So Nathan's going to say uh, this, and this is what, God, notice what it says, verse 11, this is what the Lord says, and I want to say this together. This is what the Lord says, out of your own what? Out of your own household. He doesn't know what that means yet, but it's coming. Out of your own household, God says, I will going to bring calamity on you. What you did in secret, I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. David, because you're the leader, because you're the king, you're not just the leader of your family, you're not just the leader of, you know, of a tribe, you're not just the leader of a, of a business, you're the leader of the entire nation. So you're accountable to the entire kingdom. So there will be consequences that everybody in the kingdom is going to know about. David doesn't know what that means. But that leads David, verse 13, 2 Samuel chapter 12, Then David said to Nathan, what did he say? He said, I have, I have sinned before the Lord, against the Lord. And this is again a reminder that David's eyes are open and he realized I am a king, but I am not the king. And one of the great things about David and all his faults and failures is he never abandoned God's law. Yeah, he would break it. You and I do the same, don't we? He would break it, but he would allow God's law to break him, to humble him. And once again, we find David humbling himself and acknowledging his fault and surrendering to the will of God. And it was true repentance. And so, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But there's still going to be an unavoidable consequence that's coming as a result of this. You had someone who was innocent, murdered. You tried to hide it. You lied, and you lied to an entire nation. So the consequence is coming. Well, a year goes by, nothing. Two years go by, nothing. Five years go by, nothing. No consequence yet. Finally, ten years later, the consequence takes hold, and David's world begins to turn upside down, and at the end of the day, the end of the story, his dreams can't come true. So here's what happened. David's oldest son, Amnon, was consumed with lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Amnon just could not get Tamar out of his mind. And so Amnon decides to pretend to be sick and to be extremely sick, and he asks Tamar to prepare a special meal for him. She brings the meal over to him. Amnon then tries to convince her to go to bed with him. She resists. Look what the Bible says, 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 12. She resists. She says, no, my brother, don't force me. She's like, hey, listen, don't force us, man. We're related. This is, you can't do this. She goes on and says, such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. Verse 14. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than her, he raped her. And then this next verse, it's just gut-wrenching. But the biographers, the people who bring us this story, they don't skip the details. And notice what the, the Bible says. It says this, verse 15, and I want to say this together. Then Amnon what? Amnon hated her with intense hatred. This is right after he raped her. 
In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. King David finds out what had happened with his son and his daughter. And what did David do? What was David's response to the way his son treated his daughter? You know what David did? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. One of the things we discover in the biography of David is he was a much better fighter than he was a father. David did nothing. Well, then we're introduced to a new character into the story. And that's David's other son, Absalom. Now, Absalom recognizes that his sister, her life's over. It's changed because in that culture, after what happened to her, you know, no one would have her now. And so she's in tr- she has nowhere to go, nowhere to turn. So Absalom decides to take Tamar into his home. But he too doesn't do anything. He doesn't confront his brother Amnon. He doesn't go to his father David and says, what's the deal? We need to do something about this. He doesn't do anything. But Absalom is shrewd. And he lays low for a couple years. And when he thinks time has passed and maybe people will have gotten over the event with, with Amnon and Tamar, he decides to throw a family feast and invite all the family members to the, to the gathering. You know, let's bring everybody together. Well, David doesn't attend, but Amnon does. And Amnon gets good and drunk. And then Absalom gets his men, gathers them together, and he has his brother Amnon slaughtered in front of the entire family to get revenge for what Amnon did to their sister, Tamar. Well, as you can imagine, this creates a whole new batch of family problems, right? (laughs) I mean... They already got problems. This creates a whole new layer to the family problems. And so Absalom realizes, I got to get out of town. And so he leaves town. But by the way, when David found out what his oldest son, Amnon, uh, that he was murdered by one of his other sons, which, by the way, later on we find out in the story, David's favorite son is Absalom. When David finds out that Absalom killed Amnon, what does David do? Nothing. Again, he does nothing. It's like he gives him a pass. Well, Absalom's been gone for three long years. David's missing his favorite son. And so David decides to invite Absalom back to Jerusalem, back to Hebron. But he he refuses, even though he invites him back, he refuses to see his son. He's the king. People have to be allowed to see the king. And he refuses. And Absalom, he just wants to see his dad. It's been a lot of years. Two more years go by. He's in town. He's right down the street, and David will not let him him come in. And Absalom's like, this has been five years since this event happened. I tried to, you know, to honor my sister and do the right thing by, by, you know, and my dad should want to see me. I want to talk this out. I want to work this out. He finally gets his dad's attention. His dad, David, decides to finally see him. This is five years after the event. Absalom goes in. David sees him. Absalom bows down before him. David lays his hands on him, which is his way of saying, you're forgiven, our relationship is restored. But the reality is it wasn't restored. And the fact, the best that we can tell, David never sees or calls for his son again. Well, Absalom, he's just hurt. He's angry. 
thought he was doing the right thing by his family. And his dad is not embracing him. He's like, I've had enough. You ever get that way with family? You're just like, I, I, I can't take it anymore. Well, different time, different culture. There, I can't take it anymore means I'm going to overthrow you <laughs> and take the throne. So he comes up with a plan. Absalom decides, you know something? My daddy's the king, and as a king, one of your jobs is to be the judge, and people would come see the judge and get their cases heard and, or their situations, and the king would impart wisdom to people. Remember David's son Solomon? The Bible talks about people from all over the world would come to see his son Solomon because he was so wise, right? So, so David would, would see people, and Absalom thought to himself, wait a second. There's so many people coming to see David. There's my dad. There's a backlog, and people are waiting days and weeks and months to see my dad. I know what I'll do. I'll set up right outside the city gates, and I'll just start seeing people like crazy. So he sets up, and people come to see him, and, and he judges their case, and, and people realize the guy's pretty smart, and, 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 and word travels that he's there, and it might take you a month to see David, but Absalom will see you like right away. He does this for four years. And then the Bible says something very interesting as a result of this strategy of his. Second Samuel, let's jump ahead now to chapter 15. Go ahead a few pages. 2 Samuel 15, and look at verse 6, and notice what it says. As a result of everything that Absalom was doing and being with the people, it says, Absalom stole the hearts of the people. Now, now it's like the people know who he is. They're on his side. And he says, now it's time to set my plan in motion. Look at chapter 15, verse 10. Here's his plan. So we sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sounds of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. It's a brilliant plan. Because back then they didn't have newspapers. Back then they didn't have radio. Back then they didn't have social media. So the best way to, to get communication out was, to set, was messengers. And so all of a sudden, people were hearing all at the same time in city across city across city, Absalom is king. So everybody's hearing Absalom is king. It must be true. Someone heard it from somebody in a city, and then someone else comes into the city. Next thing you know, the people are like, hey, Absalom's king. We, we love Absalom. I mean, that guy's incredible, and he sees us. David waits months. He'll see us right away. And so people hear that. This is 16 years after David's incident with Bathsheba. And it's at this point that David's world begins to unravel on entirely new levels. I mean, it's already been bad. His firstborn son had been murdered by his favorite son. His daughter had been raped. This son of his, his favorite son, is now instigating a civil war, and he's about to divide the entire nation. Let's look at this verse, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13. So a messenger came to David and told David, Hey, David, the hearts of the people are with is of Israel are with your son Absalom. It doesn't necessarily surprise David because he'd heard the rumors. But again, through the whole process, David did nothing. Verse 14, David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he'll move in quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. You realize what's happening here? David, once again, he has to abandon the throne. 
He has to leave the city to save the city and to save the people in the city. And once again, he's on the run. Once again, he's a fugitive. But this time he's not 22 years old, young stud David. Now he's 61 years old. Listen, this was not the dream, man. This was not the plan. This was not the expectations. This was not how I was supposed to spend this season of my life. His dreams were not coming true, and as it turned out, they could not come true. You see, this is where our story really begins to intersect with David's story. Here some of us are this morning, and you might be here this morning and you're heartbroken. You might be here this morning and there's some disappointment going on. There's some anger going on. There might be disappointment and anger towards God. You might even be over something in your life right now. You might be blaming God. You're like, God, where are you? God, you could keep this from happening. God, I mean, I tried to do the right thing, God. I mean, I followed you. I, I, you said, God, if you work hard and if you're honest, good things happen. Well, I was honest and I lost my job. Or I worked hard and it hasn't worked out. I hung in there with them. Love never fails, and yet they just keep trying to destroy our relationship. We can relate to David. So David, his family, and his supporters, to save the city, they leave the city. And they get out before Absalom arrives. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23. story starts to get interesting. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. David isn't even sure where he's going at this point. For those of you who've been to Israel, you can actually picture this right now. The rest of us, you're just going to have to imagine it. But you have the city, uh, you know, the city of David right, right here and you have the tabernacle. David, what David does is he leaves that city. He goes down the Kidron Valley. He crosses the Kidron and he begins to go up the other side. The other side's the Mount of Olives where Jesus was, okay? So he begins to go up the other side, heading up the hill. And if you've been there, that's where all of the, um, all the graves are above the, the, um, the Garden of Gethsemane. And they go up to the hill, get to the top ridge. And I want you to imagine David standing on the top ridge and he looks back at his city. And then he turns back around and he looks and sees nothing but wilderness. And he takes that deep breath and he's like, here I go again. Back to the caves. Back to running. What am I going to do? Man, this wasn't the plan. This wasn't the dream. 2 Samuel 15, verse 24, Zadok, he's the high priest. He was there too, and all the Levites were with him, and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. This is really, really important. The Ark of the Covenant of God, it represented the presence of God for all of Israel. And so what they understood was that you are never closer to God than when you are in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. It represents, think about this, it represented the, the presence of God. And so when David saw the Ark of the Covenant leaving the city, it looked as if the presence of God was leaving the city and was going with David. David was like, man, this feels, doesn't feel right. This feels manipulative. It implies that God's on our side. Verse 25, then the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back to the city. David, 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 oh, time out, David, you shouldn't do that you do that, it's going to look like Absalom's right and that we're in the wrong. David, I don't know if that's a good idea. 
But listen to David's explanation why. This is so incredibly powerful of why he told them to take the ark back. Verse 25, he said this, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, in other words, I'm not, this time I'm going to try to manipulate God. I'm not going to try to talk God into something. It's not going to be my way, my will, my timing. I've done that. I'm not doing it now. He said, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back and let me see it, the ark, and the, in his dwelling place again. In other words, if God chooses to bring me back, he brings me back. But this time, I'm not taking matters into my own hands. You know what, what I love about David's story? It's the two steps forward, one step back. He does the right thing, but then he screws it up. Does the right thing and screws it up. Does the right thing and screws it up. Anybody relate? Raise your hand. And then the rest of the perfect people, we admire you and we idolize you. But for the rest of us, this is like, we get it. <laughs> we get this. And here David has some clarity. He's like, man, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands again. Every time I do it, it just I mess things up. I've learned. He says, verse 26, he says, uh, he, but if God says I'm not pleased with you, David says this, I'm ready. Let him do whatever seems good to him. In other words, David's saying, not my will anymore. God, I want your will. Every time I try to step in the way, I mess it up. Every time I try to get in the way, I make the, a bad decision. I'm not going to go to war with my son. God put me in place. God gets to choose when it's time that I get replaced. God's will, God's way, God's time. He finally remembers. So he leaves the city and he leaves the ark. Now this is so powerful for every single one of us. David lost his world. His world came crashing down. But you know what? Even though it came crashing down, David did not lose his confidence in God. David did not lose his faith in God. Absalom shows up, takes the city, no effort, without a fight, but it's a hollow victory because his dad is still alive. In walks a couple of David's trusted advisors. One of them, Ahithophel, he decides to switch teams, so much for a trusted advisor. And he joins Absalom. And he gives him advice, and he says, hey, Absalom, you need to go after your dad right now. Go quick. Let's go get him. Let's defeat him. Let's kill him. Let's take him out. Then the city's yours 100%. You don't have to worry about civil war. David anticipated that. So David had one of his advisors that went with him, Hushai. And he says, Hushai, I want you to go back. Pretend like you're with my son. But I want you to give, you know, bad advice. I want you to foil uh, Ahithophel's advice. So Hushai goes back. And he says this, 2 Samuel, let's skip ahead now to chapter 17. Chapter 17, a couple more pages. Verse 7, Hushai said to Absalom, the advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. He says, here's what you ought to do. Look at this. Chapter 17, verse 8. You know your father and his men. Let's say this word together. 2 Samuel 17, verse 8. You know your father and his men. They are fighters. Man, he may be 61, but don't be fooled by his age. They're fighters. Look at what the Bible says. They're as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father himself is an experienced fighter. Don't listen to Ahithophel. Don't go after. Stay here. Let's regroup. Let's get our army together. Then we'll go get them later. Absalom takes Hushai's advice. Might have saved David's life. It gave him time to get away, to regroup. Well, eventually Absalom gets his troops together, comes up with a plan, and 
they go after David. David hears about his son's coming, and David knows here war is coming. And David makes a decision. He says, chapter 18, flip ahead one more page. Verse 5, he says, hey guys, I know the war is coming. Will you be gentle with my son Absalom for my sake? Listen, I, I, I know he's done a lot of bad things, but he's still my son, and I love him. Isn't that like a, like a parent? We make bad decisions, but we make good decisions. We love our kids, but we hate our kids, you know, when they're making, he's in that. Maybe hate's a strong word. But at times. So he's in the midst of all that. He's like, guys, be gentle. <laughs> and they're all thinking, yeah, you're crazy. There's war. Verse 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6, the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Verse 7, there Israel's troops were routed by David's men. And the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men died. <laughs> the, and this verse is just, my imagination goes crazy here. The battle spread out over the whole countryside. And the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. What in the world does that mean? I mean, that's like Lord of the Rings stuff, right? Isn't it? You know, tree beard and the ants and all that. I mean, that's where my brain goes. Eventually, Absalom is caught. Instead of being taken prisoner and taken back to De David and be gentle, Joab, his general, decides to butcher Absalom as the army watches. David's told that his son is dead. He mourns his son to such a degree that the soldiers are afraid to celebrate their victory. Joab comes to David and is like, David, what's wrong with you? The way you're mourning your son, it's like your men think you have lost. They feel like, like they're just really torn right now. You need to get over this. You have won. Let's celebrate. You have the kingdom back. But it was a hollow victory for David because he loved his son, Absalom. David returns to the city. And once again, he is the king. And he would live there until he died at age 70. But those remaining years back in Jerusalem, in Hebron, his life was never the same again. His dreams had all been shattered, all been destroyed. One of the things that I love about the scriptures, the Bible, is that the biographers don't hide truth. They give us David's faults, failures, and flaws, warts and all. And the thing that's so amazing, the thing that I want us to, to learn and to understand as we wrap up the narrative of David's life is this. That David, with all his flaws, with all his missteps, with all his misdeeds, no matter how much he messed up, the one thing about David is he never lost his confidence in God. He lost his confidence in himself many times. He never lost his confidence in God. When things didn't go the right way, when it was someone else's fault, or even when it was his own fault, he never lost his confidence in God. And David's somewhat sad ending should remind you and I of something extraordinarily important. And I don't want us to miss this as we finish off this series. And that's this, that the foundation of your faith, the foundation of my faith, it's not answered prayer. The foundation of our faith is not having happily ever after moments. 
The foundation of our faith is not having everything work out the way we hope, the way we desire, the way we plan. Because the reality is, is that our dreams sometimes don't come true because the decisions of others are our own decisions. And sometimes they can't come true. Sometimes they won't come true. It won't happen. But David would quickly remind you and I, if you're feeling that way or that's your life, you need to remember when you feel forsaken, you're mistaken. And when you feel like maybe God's not there, God has abandoned you, God's not coming through for you, you're wrong. Because David would say, no matter what I went through, no matter how far away I met, no matter how much sin I did, no matter how much other people did, God was with me. And what I'm hoping is, as we finish this, is that you'll hold to these two verses for the rest of the year, for the rest of your life. When all hope is gone for you, just like it was for David. He didn't know if he'd ever see the city again. He doesn't know if he'll ever be restored. He doesn't know what's going to happen in this next chapter of his life. And we went through the verse quickly, but I want to go back to it. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 26. David just said this, Let God do to me whatever seems good to him. Can I encourage you to live your life that way? Would you be willing to just lay before God and say, let God do to me whatever seems good to him? In other words, not my will, but thy will. I know how I want things to turn out. I know how I want things to go. I know how I've prayed for things to go, but not my will. Thy will. I may lose my world. You may lose your world, but you don't have to lose your confidence in God. You don't have to lose your faith in God. You can choose not to abandon God, even if you think or it appears as if God has abandoned you. And as we finish it off, David's story, which I think is so similar to so many of our lives in so many different ways, I want to finish with the verse we started with in the series. Because I suspect it was a mantra for David. It was like a life motto. When my dreams aren't coming true, when my dreams can't come true, when your dreams aren't coming true, when your dreams can't come true, David simply said, Psalm 25, verse 1, In you, Lord God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. God, do whatever you see fit with me. Because I am going to hope in you all day long. That's the story of David. What about your story?